the second episode of Release Cost. Today, we've got Jack from Zigo, who's going to be discussing how to move a corporate VPN over to WireGuard. Welcome to the show, Jack. Before we get started, can you introduce yourself and let the listeners know a little bit about what you do at Zigo? Uh, yeah, hi everyone. Um, so I'm a security-focused uh, DevOps engineer, and I've been working at Zigo for nearly a year now. Um, prior to that, I was at KPMG um, as a DevOps engineer there as well, um, and also that was sort of a compliance sort of angle. Um, but at Zigo now, I'm more sysops um, than DevOps. Um, I mean, th- there's so many names for it; um, it gets quite confusing. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, security really. Um, it's the kind of area of Zigo that I'm looking at. Um, obviously, the the purpose of the show is to to talk about VPNs, um, which, as everyone kind of realised during the pandemic, that VPNs were a thing, um, and for most people, they kind of fell over because they weren't being used at the extent that they were prior to the pandemic. Um, and now, now they're being used a lot more than they used to be. Great stuff. So, like you said, today we're going to be talking about WireGuard. Before we embark on your journey, can you let the listeners know what you were running prior to choosing WireGuard? Uh, yeah, so before WireGuard, um, we were using OpenVPN, and that was fairly easy to set up. Uh, it's just that we were running into random errors with OpenVPN where Slack, for some reason, the DNS behind it just wasn't resolving. Um, so it meant that no one could actually talk to uh, to anyone after that which literally broke the reason of needing a VPN. Um, so even though you could talk to internal things over the VPN, you couldn't talk to each other, which made it quite useless as a VPN. And it was not great to manage. We had it automated to like replace it if it went down. It was just that there was a lot of little things that were behind it that just made it very annoying to look after. There's a lot of settings within OpenVPN. Let's just put it that way. Okay. That's interesting. So something that caught my attention there, when did these problems start occurring? Were they prior to the pandemic or did they occur after the pandemic kicked off? Uh, These kind of errors were happening prior to that, but when people were working within the office, um, they didn't need to be on a VPN. They could connect from the office to anything that we needed to connect to. But then during the pandemic, obviously, those kind of problems got highlighted even more. We were aware of the problems prior to the pandemic and we wanted to fix them. Uh, it's just that the pandemic sort of re- reshifted priorities um, to focus in more on that side of things. Okay, so you're now in a situation where you've got a whole bunch of users that are connected to a VPN. However, they can't communicate with each other, which defeats the purpose of having a VPN in the first place. So you guys decided to transition over to WireGuard. And during that time, it was fairly new, it was fairly experimental, and there was not much tooling out there. Talk us through your journey and how you went about implementing it, considering the ecosystem was evolving. Um, yeah, so the first steps were, we obviously saw that it came out, um, and we were just kind of playing around with it. In our own time as well just playing around for a bit at home um on like raspberry pis and i just really like wireguard in terms of speed um like if i was using openvpn i could definitely see a speed degradation um just between me downloading anything um whereas when i was using wireguard out and about on my phone i genuinely didn't 
even noticed that I even had a VPN on um, in comparison to OpenVPN. It's just so transparent and quick. And then just kind of threw up just a really basic WireGuard box um, with the certificates and generating them and handing them out and ensuring that people could connect um, by making sure that they're either whitelisted on the security group and then they had their obviously the certificate but then like the, those that in itself raised some problems just like anyone who could then potentially get that certificate could then connect as someone else which then raises security concerns because we'd want to have two-factor authentication on there if possible and then that's kind of when we went down this path of trying to figure out how do we do this um because it was so new no one else really had this yet so then it was a well do we just accept that as a risk or do we actually try and implement something ourselves? Okay. So I remember actually when I was uh, was actually working with you guys during that time, you decided to uh, to actually implement it yourselves. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, you built sort of a, a self-service platform. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and um, tell us a bit about the tech stack that you used on that, how you sort of went by implementing it, how it solved sort of these initial challenges and problems that you're facing? Yeah, so the self-service platform was sort of broken up into two parts. There was kind of the front end and, well, basically the back end. Um, so the front end was just a, a web app and basically you would go onto there and the only way that you could log in, you would hit the sort of the home page and it would instantly say sign in with um, our SSO provider. So you'd sign in through SSO and then you'd have a 15 minute window within there to get a certificate so you sign in that would then create you as a user in the platform and then you could create yourself certificates so it was all self-service um, when you would go in the first time it would ask you for your phone number so that then it would basically create you as a user within Authy um, which is by Twilio to give you push notifications so that was kind of the front end setup and that was a very small web application. It didn't need to be up 100% of the time. Like if there was a little outage on it, it wouldn't really matter. Whereas then the back end, which was the bit that then would go, what certificates are there, right? There's all my certificates. So let's put it all into my server configuration. So then anyone who's got that certificate can connect to me. And then that was WireGuard really with the connection side of things. But then the sort of the tool that we had that was wrapped around WireGuard would detect that you as a user has has connected. Um, so we would see your public key and go, right, that's user one. Let's go off and send that person a push notification via Orphy. So then that person would have to say yes on their phone in order for their traffic to be allowed through the, the, um, the instance that we were running. And then that would basically give them a 12-hour window, which is perfectly suitable for a full day of work we didn't want to do it for say like eight hours because there's potential that you could start work in the morning and then you would end up being disconnected when you were about to finish in half an hour's time so you don't have to redo another eight hours and yeah that that worked um there was a lot of like sort of learning uh, around WireGuard for that. Initially, I tried to do it in Python, um, but the concurrency side of things in Python was quite convoluted. So then I ended up looking at Go, and I'd never written anything in Golang before. So this was kind of a, a big journey to take. Um, but when I started using Go, because I'd already understood some of the things that I needed to do um, with WireGuard itself, it made things a lot easier 
um, like the concurrency side of things in Go, it was so easy to set up an event loop that would just continuously ask WireGuard, has anyone connected to you? And WireGuard would spit out some information. And then I would evaluate that information um, on the main event loop to say, oh, somebody new's connected, kick off a sort of a, a subroutine, um, a Go routine. Um, so then that Go routine would be in charge of authenticating that person and then adding them into WireGuard. And then the main event loop can, can carry on. So there was never blocked by somebody authenticating, which would mean that it could scale. So if 100 people connected in the morning, then you'd have 100 Go routines kicking off in the background whilst the main event loop would just carry on and just keep checking. Um, and there was obviously kind of like an internal log, which would go, I see that user one's connected. They haven't authenticated yet, but they're actually currently in authentication flow. So you don't kick up another Go routine for that person because it could take up to two minutes for that person to potentially authenticate. That was just because of timeouts with uh, Orphi. Um, so obviously you wouldn't want to block the main event loop for two minutes. So you'd let that Go routine get blocked for two minutes, um, which is fine. And then it would update um, our database that we had. We were using DynamoDB just because it was easy enough to use. Um, didn't really have to think about backups. It was very easy to do and didn't have to run anything else that would be quite expensive to potentially run. So both sort of the front end and the back end would use DynamoDB to store information. Front end would be in charge of parts of it and the back end would be in charge of other bits of it as well um, and then it just kind of work together um, to get everything going then sort of some of the limitations that we had of this was that WireGuard it's not easy to disconnect someone how do you disconnect someone when you've got a certificate well you would remove it from there but then how do you make sure that you don't re-add it back if you don't want them to continue connecting? So the way that we kind of got around this was using the front end, we would say if your configuration is disabled or not. And basically the back end would say, oh, hello, I see that you haven't responded to my push notification. I'm going to try again. Oh, you haven't responded for the second time. Well, now I'm going to disable your certificate. So the back end then would, within the main event loop, it was checking to see who was authenticated. And that would then basically become the server configuration. So if you had been disabled, you would never be in the server configuration, which means that you could never connect. Then you'd have to go to the front end to re-enable your certificate to then be able to reconnect. That is a very interesting journey. So you started off with Python you realized it had some limitations and in order to overcome those limitations, you decided to rewrite the entire thing using Go. So you now got a self-service portal which allows users to authenticate and initialize a session using their own certificate. Did this self-service portal bring you or provide any advantages? And after you implemented it and it was being utilized, did you notice any limitations? Um. It was easier to use. Um, the fact that it was with SSO, it meant that if people left, um, then you wouldn't be able to sign in again. Um, we would end up, your configurations would just get deleted. So it's like you've left the company. Well, goodbye. I don't need to think about cleanup. Um, the other things that were beneficial um, was other than the speed side of it, it was easier to kind of debug because it wasn't like one of the other problems with OpenVPN that I forgot to mention earlier is you've got an OpenVPN configuration file. Now, what client do you use on your computer? 
there's multiple clients that you can use with that configuration, which makes it much, much harder to debug when somebody says that my connection doesn't work. It's like, well, what client are you using? Okay, so you're using this other client. Maybe could you try this other one? And you just constantly having to play this game of what what does the problem look like on their machine? Whereas with WireGuard, there was only the one client that we could use. So that kind of nipped a lot of problems in the bud because it's like, here's WireGuard, here's the client, get on with it. Um, and that made life a lot easier um, with WireGuard because it's kind of, here it is. I mean, there were limitations with that. Like it would have been great if I could have pushed the message back to the WireGuard client to say, disconnect. Other other applications that have built sort of um, around WireGuard, um, just using it as the tunnel. They have obviously their own clients, which is like NordLynx and other things that are around that. They're able to do that because they've got like the client and server side sort of piece tied down. They can have their own server speak to their own client, um, which is just then wrapping WireGuard from end to end. Okay, that's interesting. So yeah, so that was your your first phase, and if I understand correctly, you also had um, there was obviously some some limitations with with what you done, even though it provided you with benefits. But you wanted to take it a step further, and you made some further improvements. So, do you want to talk about what you did on your second phase? Yeah. So then, some of the limitations that that kind of highlighted, and I mean, it's more around the pandemic, around remote working, is that when people are in an office, um, obviously you can Zoom call and you can still do that sort of hey i'm kind of sat next to you sort of thing but if you're in the office um you tend to be able to network to each other um at a computer level so developer one could be running the database and developer two could be running the application to help developer one with a bug that they potentially have in their database to just to, to, to learn with openvpn because it was a point to point like hub and spoke kind of network um, and I was the same with WireGuard the way that we had it set up it was very limited because it went from your computer to the server that we were running and we weren't doing it between each like developer one and developer two now I know that you can do that in WireGuard but then it would mean that people would have to know a lot more about networking in their own home to be like right I need to open up this port to the world or open it to my friend or my colleague's IP address um, I know that is possible but it that's that's quite laborious like if you've got to do that for 10 developers because you're working with that many people in a single day then that that could get quite frustrating and quite slow and then we're opening up people to security risks in their own home which for me I wouldn't want to be doing so then we kind of looked into alternatives and we came across um, Tailscale. We came across Tailscale kind of before we went down the first phase. It's just that uh, some of the features that we wanted weren't there yet. So then that's why we went down that first phase path. And by the time we'd been using this for a little while, Tailscale had matured significantly and it is still maturing. There's a lot of features that are coming out with it that are amazing. Tailscale working as sort of a reverse proxy with WireGuard means that you can be on any network and connect to anyone else who's on the same sort of tail scale network, which makes it very, very good for working from anywhere in the world. We can have developers in Scotland, someone in Australia, they can connect to each other. Um, one might be a bit more tired than you have a developer, um, <laughs> but they can still connect. And it just made it very easy to create sort of a mesh network as if everyone was in a single place of work. But then you think, okay, what about security? Well, tail scale allows you to say, these, this team can connect to this team and 
you as a sole person with your own um tail scale connection can say do i want to allow incoming connections um most of the time you have that off because you don't want to necessarily just be sort of plugged into somebody else's computer um, at a network level. I know you still have firewalls and that on your own computer, but it's just another layer of security. But yeah, that's that's when Tailscale then like really became the good thing, and we just thought, right, there are these features that are in Tailscale now. We don't want to develop that stuff in house because it's not it's not our sole purpose as a company to create an amazing VPN. You know, it's an insurance company, so that's what we then were focusing on. So be kind of fate we phased out that phase one essentially okay so it seems like tail scale helped you overcome some of these um issues that you were experiencing but how does tail scale sit within your within your stack and within this whole setup um it was pretty much a case of just using their stack so we made sure that our sso provider worked um with tail scale and it did so then all you've got to do is download the Tailscale client and you can do that on, on your servers as well to connect your server to the mesh. Um, and the way that we've gone about it is to use um, a relay node within AWS because we don't want to run the the Tailscale client on every single one of our servers. So we basically allow you to get through to AWS and then from there, it, we then dictate on the server side like the actual application servers to say if that can connect. Um, and then with Tailscale, we can also say what if that team can connect to those IP addresses using the ACLs that Tailscale have available to you. Okay, perfect. That was quite the journey then. You've obviously gone through, through the first step, which is developing something in-house. You then moved on to a third-party solution, which provided you the functionality and also overcame the limitations that you, that you initially experienced. Would you recommend other people or corporates moving over to to WireGuard and if they go down this route do you have any sort of um, tips or recommendations for them? Uh, Yeah so I definitely would recommend um, looking at WireGuard and definitely would recommend split tunneling. Um, Most VPNs if you end up doing pulling 100% of people's traffic um, when there was only 10 people working remotely it didn't really you didn't notice that impact but then when you've got hundreds of people potentially working from home and you're pulling 100 percent of their traffic um you want to have something that's going to be lightweight and you definitely want to try to split tunnel so you only pull the traffic that you care about you don't want to pull the developers spotify music um because they're going to be listening to that stuff all day um and that, that's going to cost a lot of bandwidth um so you know there's a lot of little things to consider um and if your core business is not to be a VPN or networking company, then I'd more than likely definitely recommend to use um, a third-party product. Thanks a lot for being on the show. It was an absolute pleasure to have you here. It's been great.